taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of apologetics while taking truth into the arena of ideas. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, as we enter into the arena of ideas. So, part of the scripture today that we're going to read is uh, Exodus 14, 14. It says in Exodus 14, 14, The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. And without consulting, I have a couple of passages of scripture that go along that same that same uh, description. Psalm 20, verse 7 says, Some take pride in chariots and others in horses, but we will take pride in the name of the Lord our God. Isaiah 31, 1 says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and depend on horses. They trust in the abundance of chariots. And in the large number of horsemen, they do not look to the Holy One of Israel, and they do not seek the Lord. This is the Word of God. Well, taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of Christian apologetics. Well, taking the truth in the arena of ideas. This is the Bellator Christie Podcast. My name is Curtis Evelo, and I'm joined by Brian Chilton as we answer your most pressing apologetic and theological questions of the day. Well, hello, everyone. We've been praying for you. I want to just offer it up. Uh, that everybody goes and checks out on bellatorchristie.com, that you check out the latest articles um, and engage with them. Uh, down at the bottom of each, uh, of each article, uh, there's, a, there's a tab down there that you can, you can reply and you can, you can engage with that. Um, uh, now, they are, they are monitored. They are checked. So if it gets out of hand or if, or if language is used, we, we monitor that. So, but, we, but we do want people to, uh, to engage with us, ask questions. Um, it might even, the question may even be featured on another podcast somewhere. So, uh, we want to know what you guys have been thinking, um, how, how Bellator Christie has been, been blessing you, um, and, and what things that, uh, you enjoyed hearing and, and, uh, listening to us on the podcast. I would like to really hear what, what things have blessed, uh, people. Um, so if you could just even engage with us on bellatorchristie.com on the email, and uh, that'd be good. Let's go ahead and welcome along uh, Brian Chilton and uh, see how his day's going. Well, hello, Brian. Well, as my grandpa used to say, I am fine as frog hair split three ways. <laughs> <laughs> Where was that frog hair located? <laughs> he never said. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> you know, Curtis, I want to say a word, give a word of encouragement and, and just uh, thanksgiving as well, because, you know, this is just not bragging on us, but bragging on the Lord. You know, we mm-hmm. we were talking about this before the podcast, but uh, we made a decision very early on not to become politically um, involved and politically focused, but to stay focused and stay true to the Word of God and, uh, and the Kingdom of God. And, Curtis, you know, I have had numerous people the past couple of weeks due to all the mess that's going on to thank uh, thank me personally for our commitment to staying true to the word of god and not becoming um you know immersed with the political uh issues going on that's not to say politics isn't important i'm not saying that don't misquote me on that but i have i've my numerous people have thanked me for our devotion to the biblical text and um, and really have thanked me for us at bellator christi taking a very balanced approach 
um, in the way we in the way we discuss things and the way we deal and handle things. So um, I, I'm very grateful for that. Honestly, yeah, I don't think we can take credit for it. I mean, even today when we were talking about the scriptures, getting the scriptures going, yeah. that, that was a Holy Spirit thing because. I was looking at a couple of scriptures, and then you were looking at a scripture, and we were talking about it, and come to find out they were all talking about the same thing, (laughs) really complimenting one another very well. So uh, it's a Spirit of God thing. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, um, we could dip dip into uh, politics very easy, Um, but but the biggest thing is is, is Bellator Christie is a... We want to have a worldwide ministry. We want to have it to where we're reaching out and and touching people all across this world. And and it's what's important to us is that we that we help people understand the biblical truth of what they're picking up and reading um, and engaging with. And I think that's I think that's important. I think that's the whole idea of the ministry is is to verify and confirm the authenticity of the scripture. And how it's working throughout our lives, and how how we can apply it into um, our our normal daily functions. So, anyway, our uh, our can, topic can, of the day, Brian. Can I say one thing real quickly before sure. you do it? This actually sure. had this actually went along with uh, the comps. Uh, that I was preparing for last week. By the way, those who prayed, I thank you. I haven't heard anything <laughs> back from it, but I've been told by graduates, as long as you don't hear anything, you know you've done okay. So <laughs> I'm taking that as a good sign. But well, I was rem- good. I was reminded of something that Dr. Uh, King said, in, uh, not Martin Luther, but Dr. Kevin King at Liberty. He said that the goal and the aim of theology is to make it practical. And the way you do that. And this actually coincides with our discussion today. The way you do that is you first start with biblical theology, see what the Bible says, then you systematize it into systematic theology, grouping together the large themes of the Bible, then you evaluate theology through the lens of history, see how different uh, historians, um, excuse me, different theologians throughout history have in, have interpreted it, and then you make it practical to everyday life. So the aim is to start with the Bible, go through systematic theology, historical theology, and end up with a very practical theology. And that's what mm-hmm. we try to do through these podcasts. Right. Right. And, you know, it's kind of funny because a year ago, I came on, a little over a year ago, I came on board. And what what I guess the Spirit was really kind of through prayer and through just thinking about it and talking with you, I think what's, what's really been nice and almost kind of handy you could say is I I help I help I help you along the way keeping keeping you from getting too far out there in in the in the in the in the wordy stuff and I ask you to bring it back down to simple terms and I think what what that allows is it allows somebody to have a voice to say I, I don't quite understand can you explain that a little deeper Absolutely. and I think that that's something that I think there's no difference in that for uh, another another spot to plug the the um, our the book you know and and also your new book that's yeah going to be coming out if i can so. ever get that chapter finished <laughs> still working on it believe it or not 60 page long chapter no, no it has well my problem right now has been i just haven't had a chance to go back and uh 
with, with everything else going on to go back and actually write on it more. So it's like the chapter that won't be written <laughs> for whatever reason, and it's talking about how God is portrayed in heaven as we find mm-hmm. in Revelation and some other passages of Scripture too. So mm-hmm. it, it you know it, it couldn't be on a better topic. It's just it won't get finished for whatever reason. Hopefully, eventually it will. <laughs> It's going to be a good one. I'm, I'm, I'm excited for it. Well, thank you. I hope so. That's my prayer. <laughs> yeah. Well, good. Now let's get back to the topic. The topic is the mark of the beast. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> I should have had a sound effect to go along with that. <laughs> Didn't even dawn on me until just then. <laughs> so um, it, let's, let's go ahead, Brian. Before we begin, let's explain the difference between the futurist and preterist viewpoints of the book of Revelation. Now, I also want to maybe even just stop and explain what both of those words mean, um, you know, with that. And I and we can give a difference between it, but really, let's break those uh, those viewpoints down just a little bit. Well, I tell you what, I'm going to have to look up the exact definition of preterism. Give me a minute. Um to type that in but i can um okay well that's the reason i didn't recognize it in greek it comes from a latin word okay so let me let me let me let's first start with preterism because this is a this is the interpretation that's lesser known by most uh people in church preterism is the idea that uh the book of revelation is talking about events that took place in the first century and really isn't so much prophetic talking about end-time events. Uh, they see that uh, much of the um, much of the, um, the book of Revelation found its fulfillment in different events. Now, I do find there to be ma- many major problems, and I have good friends who are preterists. This is not to... Um, to, to put down anyone who holds that position. But preterism, preter, many preterists believe that the book of Revelation was written before 70 A.D. and right. describes the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. The problem right. with that view is that the vast majority of biblical scholars, New Testament scholars, believe that the book of Revelation was written towards the end of the first century, maybe as late as 95 A.D., um, I think if you also take into account the very good possibility of the um, of the uh, traditions involving John being a pastor in Ephesus and being uh, uh, exiled to the Isle of Patmos being true, that would also put this book later than 70 A.D. So I think there are a lot of problems involved with preterism. But the word preterism is uh, comes from the Latin word praetor, or praetor, I guess praetor is how you say it, which is a prefix denoting something that is past or beyond. So the, even the word praetor uh, talks about something that has happened in the past. So that's where the, the word comes from, which I'm glad you asked that because I was actually curious as to what where the word stemmed from and really didn't know till just now. But, um, but that's the viewpoint of preterism. The opposing view, and, and let me just stop there again to say there are various... Um, yeah, differences in preterism. Some hold full preterism, some hold a partial preterism. Uh, so there are many different branches of preterism, just as there are many different branches of futurism. But mm-hmm. preterism is one view. Futurism is the other view. Futurists hold that uh, the vast majority of the book of Revelation is speaking to future prophetic events that are yet to happen. 
So where the preterist from the word Latin word praeter or praetor, I guess you used to say it praetor, looking back in the past, the futurist looks towards the future for a fulfillment in these different things to happen. Now, even with that being in mind, we recognize as futurists, uh, which I myself am a futurist uh, concerning the book of Revelation, we still recognize the fact that the first few chapters are talking about things that happened in the past as mm-hmm. those letters or epistles are written to the the uh, seven churches in Asia Minor. Um, we understand the fact that that's talking about events that happened in the past. So even futurism isn't wholeheartedly futuristic in, in the way it approaches Revelation because we futurists understand that there are certain sections that do talk about events that happened in the past. So there are different variations of futurists and there are different variations of preterists, but those are mm-hmm. the two main primary views. Uh, and and futurist is what most of your common de- denominations hold to this day, like your Baptists, your uh, Assemblies of God, etc., right? I- exactly, exactly. Now, mm-hmm. most of the people that I have seen who hold to the preterist viewpoint uh, maybe those who have been disillusioned with all the prophecy talk um, that that offers an out for them. Uh, so, some individuals who are more historically minded, if I have found connections, again, I think some of the connections are very dubious at best. Uh, I've just I've never bought into the preterist viewpoint uh, because um, I don't. I certainly don't think that you could be a full preterist uh, because. To be a full, complete preterist, you'd have to say that we're living in the new creation and, right. uh, of Revelation 21 and 22. Uh, if you right, were to be I'm... completely a preterist about it, and there's no right. way we're living in that, <laughs> unless you're talking about <laughs> unless you're talking about when we die, we go to a new creation or something like that. I mean, there are different loopholes, I'm sure, that could be found, but there's no way that we can say, especially with the events this past week, that we're living in the new creation. I mean, there's just no way. Right, right. Yeah, so I guess uh, let's go ahead and do, do we, we, we kind of explain the difference between it along with defining it. So um, so let's go ahead and, and uh, get into what the text uh, actually says about the mark of the beast. Yeah, and Chris, and, I, don't, I don't have the question, so I'm going to depend on you, my friend, to, to guide right, us right. along. <laughs> right, right. And, and the text that we're kind of covering is Revelation 13, more specifically, 11 through 18, correct? That's correct. But this yes. has to be, and one thing we want to emphasize in this is to be, I want to go back and emphasize, and here's something else with the comps that's come into mind, uh, which is something that came from bibliology, uh, a very difficult class, but a, a class that I learned a lot in, and that's that we need to keep an authorial intent about us when we interpret things in Scripture. Now, there are two main viewpoints. That is, well, there are variations of this, but uh, two basic large categories. There is the authorial intent, and there's reader response theory. Mm -hmm. Let me start with reader response theory. Reader response theory believe, uh, advocates believe, that the reader creates meaning for themselves. So the text is just a guide, and we make the the text, whatever that text may be, we make it say what we think it should say. 
Okay? Mm-hmm. As biblical interpreters, we don't want to do that. We want to take the authorial intent, which means that meaning is found in what the author intended to communicate. What right. was it the author was trying to say? Now, I realize it's very difficult to get into the mind of the author, but we, we use these tools to try to see, to get as close as we can to see what the author had in mind. Now, the problem with authorial intent is that it takes a lot more time and effort, takes a lot of work to try to get through to see what the author may have had in mind. Now, the, right. he, here's what you find here, though, is a lot of churches will take up this reader response theory because if you go to life groups or Bible studies and they say, what does this text say to you? <laughs> There's a problem. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's, yeah. we're not trying to see what the text says to us. Now, yes, there are many applications in the text, but we want to see what did the author have in mind when he wrote it. So in order to do that, just as businesses advocate location, 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 for biblical interpreters and interpreters of any text, it's context, context, context. We've right. got to keep it in context. Right, and that context consists of location, uh, the audience, um, the time period, um, I- any of the historical events that had gone on prior to, and, that, and that's what you're referring to is that, right? Absolutely, and, and it requires us to go back and look at the, the situations that are going down during that time, the time it was written, even the genre of literature. What's, what's the genre right. of literature intended to do? Uh, so right. all of these are part of the, our tool chest to help us try to understand what the author is communicating. Right, and we have some of those, um, actually some of those tools available on Bellator Christi. If you go back and look at uh, podcasts, you could probably put in the search, um, you know, uh, biblical intent or um, any sort of, uh, you can type in biblical uh, um, authorship or or tools. Um, You could probably find something like that. I know we got some podcasts about, um, about those subjects um, to kind of help help direct some people there, and it may so, be something we need to redo again. I mean, maybe you know there may be fresh questions about it, and something we may need to look at doing in the future. Sure, yeah, I don't have a problem with that. So um, I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to go ahead and read uh, Revelation thirteen eleven through eighteen out of the New King James version, just because that's most common. Of what people may be able to, or may may remember, or hear, have heard of. Okay, um, and, I, and and I may stop you as you go along to add a few sure. little commentary as we as we move along. And yeah, and and I'll what I'll do is I'll try to uh, I'll try to go along and I'll just uh, read it and uh, and maybe pause at each verse um, and and then number the verse just so we're kind of keeping on track of where we're at with it. That sounds good. Okay, so Revelation thirteen, eleven. Uh, started at verse 11, uh, and the, and the heading of it is, uh, in Revelation thirteen eleven. the heading of this section, uh, it says, the beast from the earth. All right, let me pause you right there as we even get started here. <laughs> this, this is in contrast to verses, actually, if you go back deep enough, uh, chapter 12, verse 18. This is a right. section that talks about a beast from the sea. Previous to this, we are introduced to a being which is the dragon. Now, the dragon is a, dragon is a serpentine animal that is associated with Satan himself. And you say, well, how do we get that? 
Go back to the Garden of Eden. It was a serpentine animal that uh, misled Adam and Eve, got them to sin. And so we see that the serpentine animal, uh, which is the dragon, represents Satan. The beast from the sea here in verses 1 through 10 is the Antichrist. And we see that uh, there are several reasons to believe that this is the Antichrist. Now, let me say here as well, Greg Laurie brought up a great point in his uh, in his weekly messages, or daily messages this past week. There have been many Antichrists. Nero is an Antichrist. There have been many Antichrists since the beginning, the foundation of the church, even through, even maybe even past that or beyond that. There have been many Antichrists, but we're talking about the future Antichrist which is one who is essentially Satan incarnate. And so now we're introduced to this third individual. And if you follow, if you follow the, 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 um, the, the message, the flow of Revelation, what you see is that Satan at every turn tries to mimic God, imitate God, because he wants to be God. We know that uh, God exists as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The dragon is trying to imitate the father, being Satan, trying to imitate God, Yahweh. The son, the uh, the Antichrist is trying to imitate Jesus, the Son, as he's trying to come as Satan come in flesh. And then the false prophet is trying to imitate the third person, which is the Holy Spirit. And so, just as the Holy Spirit leads us back to the Son. As we learn about in John chapter 14 through 16, the Holy Spirit comes, convicts us, and reminds us of the things that Jesus taught. The false prophet is trying to get people to worship the Antichrist, which is the beast from the sea. So all of this is important for us to remember as we go through this text, and especially as we talk about the mark of the beast. Right. Okay, so if we're going to be explaining each verse like this, it might take us all day, so... (laughs) I make no promises. <laughs> <laughs> so, Revelation thirteen eleven. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. All right, let's pause there. This is an important point. The two horns like a lamb means he comes uh, just like Jesus is the Lamb of God. He comes imitating Jesus. He comes promising peace. But look mm-hmm. at how he speaks. What does it say he speaks like? Like a dragon. Like a dragon. He's speaking like his father, Satan. So he comes proclaiming peace, but what he ends up doing is he speaks with the vileness and depravity of Satan himself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Verse 12, And he exercises all the authority of the first beast, beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship him. The first beast, first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. All right, let's pause there. This is another important point we got to bring out. Jesus did something fantastic. You remember what he did? He was crucified for our sins, died, buried, resurrected. Satan can't do the miracles that God does, so he has to imitate them. He provides a cheap imitation of the genuine article. And so what happens here is the Antichrist stages an event where he receives what seems to be a fatal wound. Whether or not it was really fatal or not, we don't know. Maybe it was faked. But the 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 false prophet, or anyhow, the the beast, uh, excuse me, the antichrist is healed of this as if he were resurrected, having the power mm-hmm. of Christ. Mm-hmm. So he, here again, you see the imitation 
that the Antichrist is trying to do of Jesus. He's trying to present himself as the new Jesus. And Jesus warned us, if you go back in the Gospels, that there would be many false messiahs coming in my name, saying, "Here I'm here and here I'm there, but don't go after them. He gave us this warning to help us avoid these antichrists, and particularly the final antichrist. Right. And I, and I notice in, in this, um, like, for example, verse 13 that I'm getting into, in the New King James, it, the, it starts out, verse 13, it says, He, and I notice that that's capitalized. Mm-hmm. So, is he, so what's he talking about there? Well, in the CSB, it has it also performs great signs. Uh, okay. So uh, it's, it's referring to this this uh, this beast. It's it's really referring to the beast. But but the New King okay. James version is not wrong either because it's going to be a person. Uh, right. The okay. CSB looks at it as being a beast. This the New King James looks at it as being the person. Okay, so let's get into verse thirteen. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. All right, this ought to bring up another image. See, this is something people got to realize. The Old Testament is all throughout the book of Revelation. Who was the prophet that called down fire from heaven uh, Mm -hmm. before the prophets of Baal and uh, Mm -hmm. the prophets of Asherah? I think it's prophets of Asherah. It was Elijah, the great prophet. Yep, yep. And so, so here again, he's imitating even the prophets of old, proclaiming himself to be able to do the same thing. Now, here again, I think he's probably an illusionist. I don't know that he's really doing authentic miracles. I think he's probably you know, faking it, but that's just my opinion. Right. Verse 14, And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. Telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. Okay, here again, to understand this, we've got to understand the Holy Spirit's role with Jesus. The Holy Spirit convicts the world and and, and brings to mind the teachings of Jesus leading people to Christ. This false prophet, he's not omniscient, he's not omnipresent, but by his power and force... He is trying to get people to worship the Antichrist, and by doing that, he's telling them to make an image of the Antichrist so that mm-hmm. they can live. Okay, so. Mm-hmm. So, question, would that or could that parallel with uh, the book of Daniel? Yeah, we'll get into that here shortly, but I think there's <laughs> okay. a lot of parallels. Think the book of Daniel. Think of Nebuchadnezzar as you're reading this. Mm-hmm. Think mm-hmm. of the idol that was set up by Nebuchadnezzar. Mm-hmm. I think the more I've studied this, the more I've looked at it, the more I think there is a strong parallel back to Nebuchadnezzar and the book of Daniel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Verse 15. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Now here again, think of the plague in Egypt. You remember mm-hmm. what God did? You know, the the, uh, the the firstborn, those who didn't have uh, the, the the blood of the lamb on the doorposts, they, you know, the firstborn were, were killed, you know, as a, as a judgment against Egypt. Now he's reversing this, so basically saying that if you don't worship this image, now remember the image is this idol, 
ultimately mm-hmm. talking about worshiping the Antichrist. That's what this is mm-hmm. all about. It's, it's, it's not about secretive stuff here. It's all a very public ordeal. Mm-hmm. And if you don't worship the beast, if you don't worship the killed. Antichrist, you'll be killed. Right. Verse 16. He cause, causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. Verse 17. And that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So when we get into this, we're going to talk a little bit more about this mark and the the parallels we find with what the mark we have in God. We have a mark on us, and we'll talk Mm -hmm. about that. Verse 18. It says, Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Absolutely. So that that number 666 is is going to hold value as we go through uh, this study today. Now, let me me jump over real quick. On, On the ESV, on verse 18, it starts out, it says, this calls for wisdom. Yeah, and that's what so, that's what the CSB reads too. That's what I'm reading. So, so what's what is I guess what is it, what did this is it in Greek or Hebrew that that we get um, the impact of that where it says this calls for wisdom. Well, your Revelation is written written in um, in in Greek, so so mm-hmm. this would be a Greek. Uh, but you know. Um, Huh, I don't want to give too much more <laughs> than that. I will start getting into my dissertation studies. I got to be careful with that. But anyhow, uh, let, let me just let that pause there. But uh, e- either way, I think it's what he's what he's calling for in this passage of scripture is for a person to have wisdom. I think there are many reasons why he's doing this because he's mm-hmm. making a parallel to someone. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think that person is alive by this time, but I do think that if the right people knew that he's making a parallel to that person, uh, mm-hmm. then that could cause problems for the book being distributed. So there's a code there, and I think there's a reason for the code. Mm-hmm. So verse, uh, or excuse me, uh, question three, what is the mark of the beast? When it, When is it understood with the worship of the unholy trinity? And what is the unholy trinity? Okay, so we kind of talked about the unholy trinity already a little bit. So the unholy mm-hmm. trinity is an imitation of God the Father. So you have in the Father, you have in God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Father being Yahweh, the Creator of everything, the 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 source of all that exists. The Son being the Savior, um, the the uh, executor of our salvation. He came and in in uh, initiated the the plan of salvation. He's God come in flesh. You have the Holy Spirit, who is the living presence of God, who abides with us, who applies salvation to us. And so um, you have Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So Satan tries to imitate God coming as a dragon, uh, the serpentine animal we find back in Genesis, uh, the first few, three chapters of Genesis. You see, I think it was Genesis 3, I think we see the, uh, him come along. Then you also see the Antichrist being the, the devil incarnate. He's imitating Jesus. That's the beast of the sea. And then you see the beast of the earth being this false prophet trying to take up the role of the Holy Spirit again He's not omnipresent like the Holy Spirit is. He doesn't have the power of the Holy Spirit. So to do what the Holy Spirit does, 
He's going to do it by force. You either take this or you die. Now, here's the difference between Satan and God. God freely gives. He persuades. He guides. He shepherds. He leads. Satan forces and dictates uh, by his own self-deluded authority. Uh, Ultimately, he has no authority in the end because God is coming. If you follow the biblical themes, he's coming to subjugate every nation under the authority of Christ. That at one point in time, at one day is coming, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of Lords. Amen. Yeah, and uh, we've talked about this before. We want to be on the right side of that. That's exactly right. So this, <laughs> this going back to this mark though, when it talks about the worship, I missed the second part of that. This this mark is a seal of worship to this unholy Trinity. Now, is it a physical mark? It could be. I mean, there are reasons mm-hmm. for believing that it might be. Uh, if it is a physical mark, though, uh, it's, it's something that uh, is going to be notable and, not, and knowledgeable. But it may very well be something metaphorical uh, as we look at how God does certain other things that we'll talk about momentarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you kind of just touched on that on the number four question. It's uh, is the mark of the beast a, a secretive thing? So yeah, let, let me go back to this because this this is the thing that really, if we're going to be good biblical interpreters, mm-hmm. looking at the passage we just read, there is no way the mark of the beast, whatever it is, there's no way it's a secretive thing. So right. the idea that it's a vaccine is that people are going to sneakily uh, take it. Uh, it's, it's going to be snuck into a person with, but without their will, without their knowledge. Uh, that it's going to be a microchip or a social security number, or if it's going to be a credit card or or a vaccine. This is not being true to the biblical text. No matter how you view the mark of the beast, one thing we can clearly see in the text is that whatever it is, a person takes it, it's going to be knowledgeable. People are going to know that they have it because whatever this thing is, they're basically going to reject Christ and accept the Antichrist as their Lord and Savior. And Mm -hmm. this will be the means by which they can buy and sell and so on and so forth Mm -hmm. and even live. Yeah. Scary times. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Uh. Yeah, we don't want to get into the whole. Well, we'll we'll stay away from the other stuff. I was just going to ask, but anyway. Um, <laughs> oh man, <laughs> I tell you what, if we have time, let's get back to that. If, you, if you'll make a note of that, if we have time, uh, let's do that. Yeah, I'll do that. Um, so, what does six 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 represent? This is one thing that you know, racing motocross and and doing the stuff that I mean, I saw guys all the time, you know, with with the number six 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 on there or whatever, and it's like. Really, guys, I don't know if you really know what that means, but whatever. <laughs> okay, so to understand this, we've got to do. We've got to engage in a little practice called gematria. Okay, fancy word, but what it essentially means is before you had Arabic numbers. You see, we have the numbers, the digits one, two, three, so on and so forth. In Greek, in the biblical languages of Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, every letter held a numerical value. So, for instance, in um, uh, um, in Greek, a- uh, alpha was one, beta was two, gamma was three. You go on up to tens, and then you go by 10, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, then to 100, and then you go up to a certain amount, and then you go to a thousands, and so on and so forth. So to the way to calculate a, any word 
in the Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic is to take the numerical value for each digit or each letter and calculate the sum of those letters, and every single word holds a numerical value. And that's where we have things like the Bible code. Now, I'm not saying saying there is or is not any legitimacy to a Bible code, but there are numerical values to every single letter, every single word in the Scripture. Just so happens that even names, according to Gematria, hold certain value. So, if, for instance, the name Jesus or Yeshua uh, or Isus in Greek, it holds a numerical value. And intriguingly, it's the number 888, which is the perfection of a new beginning. The number 777 mm-hmm. is the number of the Holy Trinity because 777 means perfect uh, seven, the number seven means perfection or completion, uh, right. absolute perfection. So seven 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 means absolute perfection. Eight is one digit higher than seven. It also means new beginning. It means uh, resurrection. For instance, the resurrection happened on a Sunday. That wasn't by happenstance. The Sabbath day is on Saturday. It was a new day on Sunday morning, a new right. dawn bringing forth resurrection. So and Jesus. Yeah, Jesus is 888, meaning that he is the totality, the summation of perfect resurrection and a new beginning. Mm-hmm. Now, the word in Greek, hexakoi, hexakonta hex, is the word literally meaning 666, 666. Six is one digit lower than perfection. Six is one digit lower than seven. You have 666, this means the sum total of, of man, but it also means the sum total of imperfection, the sum total even of sin. Okay, So this, net, this number, ironically, also matches an emperor's name. It also matches the name Kaiser Nero, which mm-hmm. is Caesar Nero, uh, which equates to the number 666. Now, some ancient texts have that number being 616. Interestingly, if you, if you use the word Nero in a different fashion, or Nero, a Kaiser, I can't remember exactly how it is, but there's a different way you can say the Emperor Nero, that also comes out to 616 if you do it a different fashion. What John is saying here, when put in the proper context, He's bringing to mind the exploits of Nero. Everyone knew how horrible Nero was. Right. And so those with wisdom would calculate that and say, ah, he's talking about Nero. Now, if the Caesar of the time knew that's what they were talking about, they would have destroyed the book, they would have destroyed everybody with it, and that would bring down the wrath of Rome upon them. So God is letting, letting them use a code to say, ah, he's talking about Nero. Nero was so evil right. that he used to dine, eat his supper by the light of burning Christians. Right. As people were being tortured on stakes, being burned alive, he would sit there and eat his supper watching that. Right. That is a depraved yeah, I, man. Yeah, and I, I, we actually discussed this earlier this week in small in a small group. Um and and uh, I was actually it's kind of funny that we started talking about this because I I had uh, I had mentioned to them you know Christians have been persecuted tremendously uh, horror horrible horrific stuff mm-hmm. um, 
where they've been, you know, obviously thrown into the coliseums and and so on and so forth. But the 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 most graphic one that that was blamed upon Christians was the burning of of Rome, mm-hmm. and and Nero blamed the Christians, even though they knew he knew that the Christians didn't do it. He blamed them uh, just because of their. In, in incompatibility with with the Roman culture, um, and and their and their views against what Rome stood for, and kind of sounds like things that we hear today. Um, well, and, it, see, here's the thing: that's the way Satan has to operate, right. because Satan doesn't have the authority and power of God. So, right. to get people to do his bidding, he has to do it by force. By but force, but Christ right. is exactly the opposite. Christ changed the world. People tried to get him to be a military leader. You, you remember the nu- numerous times that people wanted to grab him and take him and make him king. Right. And he, and he disappeared. avoided that. He absconded from the, 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 the area because right. they tried to make him a military king. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. Christ changed the world by love, not hate, not force. Right. And through right. the Holy Spirit's work, the world has been changed ever since then. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have problems when we get away from God. That's a whole other story. But uh, right. but, but and, what John's but, doing... He, go ahead, I'm sorry. Let me, I was just going to say... I'm getting excited about this stuff. <laughs> oh, I know. Wasn't, wasn't, John, wasn't John dipped in hot oil by Nero? The, the, well, I don't know if it was Nero. It was probably, uh, is it probably Emperor Domitian because John lived, ah, okay, okay. John lived, I believe it was Domitian, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Trajan or Domitian, I believe it was Domitian. But, um, so Nero, he's out of the scene by this time, but people still remember what he's doing. And there's another emperor by the name of Domitian who is just as bad as Nero. In fact, he even goes on an even more global scale uh, than what Nero did. So these emperors, these are signs that these emperors are against Christianity. They're against Christians. They're doing everything they can to obliterate this this cause. But what John seems to be saying, that as bad as these guys are, this future Antichrist, there are many Antichrists, plural, throughout history. I think we could even say that Hitler was a type of Antichrist. But the future Antichrist, singular, will be one who is empowered, and in fact, Satan incarnate, he will be a political leader on a global scale. Okay? Uh-huh. So it indicates that there may very well be a one world government. It doesn't have to be, but I think that I think the biblical text indicates that there will be. It'll be a global ruler, because um, so, he's going to have impact on the entire world by this time. But it's a political ruler that he is. And he has to get his false prophet to force people to take this mark, to force people to worship him. It, but, but but the spirit doesn't operate that way, mm-hmm. you know. So there's a clear, distinct difference between the operation and manner of God and the operation and manner of Satan. Mm-hmm. Isn't it interesting how we can look back at historical events and all the way through time? All the way through the biblical events, we can see all the way along where Satan is trying to get rid of the promised people, get rid of the the people that have the blood of Christ in them or are covered by by the blood of the Lamb. Um, That's exactly isn't it interesting. Right. Well, and it's isn't like it Kevin King has said. Doctor King has said many times he advocates a position called perennialism. 
we learn about our future by learning about the past. Absolutely. Because Satan uses the same tactics today that he's used since the beginning. Uh, people have the same problems. We, we just repeat the same old stuff over and over and over again. We don't learn. Right. We just repeat the right. same old cycles over and over again. So to learn about our future and our present, go back and learn about our past, and we can see right. why some of these things happen the way they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, <laughs> you know, you hear today people talking about, oh, it's Sodom and Gomorrah time. Well, actually, <laughs> you're not too far off, but um, I think yeah. it's worse. Yeah, I mean, and, and the reason God has, and I would remind people here too, let's not be praying for judgment because, you know, right. <laughs> we may be in the middle of judgment already, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. But we, you know, whenever God flips that switch to bring us into an age of judgment, it's going to be, that's going to be it. I mean, God is delaying this time to allow people more access, more time to the gospel message. There's still more souls to be saved. So mm-hmm. that's why we as Christians, not to overemphasize this, but I'm going to emphasize it anyhow, we've got to stop getting on our political platforms and we've got to start preaching the gospel because we don't know how much time we have left until right. this thing wraps up. Right. So let's get out and find that last one, right? Absolutely. <laughs> so let's let's move to number six. What is the seal or the mark of God, and what does this tell us about the mark of the beast? Now, this is interesting because, you know, a lot of times when we talk about the mark of the beast, we end at verse 18. But let's go on in verse four, chapter 14, verse 1. And, and Curtis, I'll have you read that for us. Okay. So, chapter 14, verse 1, the heading above it says, The Lamb and the 144,000. All right, pause. The 144,000. <laughs> The 144,000 are not the totality of Christians saved, okay? This is talking about a tribulational period where there are 144,000 Jewish individuals who are saved during this time. Now, 144,000 is a multiple of 12. 12 is the number of Israel because you have 12 tribes of Israel. Um, so this is, a, this is a symbolic number representing the number of Jewish believers saved during this horrible time. Right, it's 12 tribes and 12,000 people in each tribe that are saved, right? Exactly. Right, so verse 14, I mean, chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on on Mount Zion. And this goes back to Zechariah. Now, Zechariah tells of a time when when Christ the Messiah, or he doesn't say Christ the Messiah is going to come, stand on Mount Zion, it's going to split in two. So this is a fulfillment of what we find even in the book of Zechariah. Man, man, oh man. So, on Mount Zion, and with him, 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. Oh, now, wait a minute. Did we catch that? <laughs> Did we, is this a literal mark? I mean, it could be. I don't think it is, though. I, I, I don't know. Now, that's not to say that Satan's not going to have a literal mark because, again, Satan doesn't have the power that God does. But the, right. we do find throughout Scripture that there is a mark of God, okay? Mm-hmm. And if you are a child of God right now, and if you have the Holy Spirit abiding in you, guess what? The Bible says you have the mark of God already on you. Man, oh man. Man. Yeah. Woo! <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, yeah. so for instance, uh, so in in Revelation twenty two verse four it says, "They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads." Okay, uh, so we're we're told about. Uh, don't have the scripture here. God says He's going to write His the word on the hearts of the people in a, in Hebrews eight ten. If you go back right. to Deuteronomy six eight, right after the Shema. Shema, uh, uh, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. In the Old Testament, then they were told to take that word, bind it on their foreheads and hands. Now, I think that's metaphorical. They took it literal. So they took little passages of Scripture, the Shema, placed it in these boxes, and bound the boxes around their foreheads and around their, their forearms, and they would recite the passage of Scripture while doing so. So, but God says that the Holy Spirit, I don't have the Scripture on me right now, uh, but He says that He is going to mark us with the Holy Spirit of God. The, the Holy Spirit of God is God's seal that we belong to Him. Mm. So with us, we have that internal abiding Holy Spirit providing the mark of God upon us. Jesus even said... Good trees will produce good fruit. Bad trees will produce bad fruit. You can know them by right. the fruit they bear. Jesus also says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Uh, the one who abides in me will produce much fruit. This is the Holy Spirit coming up, guys, because I don't have this. This is just him going. But I'm just trying to say here, there's this connection we find with these biblical motifs, even back in the teachings of Jesus, all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy, where we see mm-hmm. God working out these things. So, we have the seal of God on us. Satan can't do that as God can. So he's forcing this mark to be placed upon individuals in a public fashion. Again, it's not a it's not a mysterious thing when it happens. It's going to be a very public thing. Right. This kind of goes back into uh, uh, I think what is it Ezekiel when he talks about removing the heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. Only it, only only God can do that. Exactly, and that's a great point, Curtis. In Jeremiah, Jeremiah talks about the new covenant, and uh, and God says that He's going to write His word on mm-hmm. their hearts. Right. So, so that's that part of that sealing we have in the book of Joel. We find the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, where the Spirit comes down upon all flesh, uh, men and women, uh, rich and poor. He pours out their, His Spirit upon them. Again, mm-hmm. Satan can't do that, so he's got to find up another way. Uh, of of trying to put his mark on people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So let's move to number seven. What does Jesus teach in Matthew twelve thirty one? That or Jesus is teaching in Matthew twelve thirty one. Tell us about the mark of the beast. Well, Curtis, I tell you what. Why don't we? You've been doing a good job reading the scripture for us. Why don't we have you? I'll turn with turn with you over here too to Matthew yeah. chapter twelve. Can I find it? <laughs> <laughs> what is it like? One of these sword of the Lord competitions where you uh, give peace, people a I'm there. A passage. Well, you beat me. <laughs> I was busy talking about the sword of the Lord competitions, and I got running my mouth. I, whoop, and <laughs> I whooped you. <laughs> you did bad so, too. <laughs> verse, verse thirty-one, uh, Matthew twelve, verse thirty-one. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be for, forgiven. All right, hold on a second. H- how many sins did he say? Every. Every one of them. Right. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Now let's go on down to verse 32. 
Okay. And read that too. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. There is only one unpardonable sin, mm-hmm. and that's the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, putting this in context, you've got to go back to... to um, actually, you need to go back to verse 9 to put this in the entire context. Right. Yeah, I was uh, just going to say you got to read, read quite a bit of that. Well, you know, actually back to chapter 12, verse 1. Uh, so so they're getting on to Jesus about uh, picking grain on the Sabbath. And so right. then he we see in verse 9 that Jesus heals a man with a shriveled hand on the Sabbath day. Uh, then he goes in talking about him. Uh, I think he talks about, uh, you know, if they have... Yeah, like David, and uh, he gives some passages of Scripture there. And then uh, we see a demon-possessed man who was blind and unable was was brought to him. He heals the blind, the uh, demon-possessed man. And now they're they're just really after Jesus, antagonizing him. And they say mm-hmm. in verse twenty-four, "This man drives out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons." Jesus mm-hmm. goes forth and says, "Every kingdom divided against itself is destined for destruction. Uh, a divided house cannot stand." We talked about that what, a few what, weeks ago. What? <laughs> yeah. yeah, what? Yeah, a divided house cannot stand. And so right. we go then to um, he talks about driving out the demons by the spirit of God. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Okay, but here's where he comes into the unpardonable sin. He's basically saying that if a person rejects the Spirit's work through Jesus, and we know that the final mark is death, so we have a lifetime to finally accept this. So rejecting unto death the Spirit's work in Jesus' life, that is the unpardonable sin. Every other sin will be forgiven except that one. And then he goes being to saying in verses 33 and following about the tree and good fruit. And how ironic is that? We were just talking about the tree and fruit. And there we have that right. passage of scripture there as well. Right. Right. And, you know, so like going back, looking at some of the historical events that we've seen just in our most recent history, you know, let's go back and talk about maybe, you know, like Hitler and Nietzsche and, and some of those you know, Nietzsche died with his fist aimed at God. Mm-hmm. Now, we and, can, and Hitler adopted the philosophy of Nietzsche. Who, in Nietzsche right. said, Friedrich Nietzsche said, "God is dead." Mm-hmm. Now, some of his right. writings are actually pretty good because he talks about what a society will become like if they adopt that position that God is dead, and it right. becomes a very secularized society, almost like a, if I understand him correctly, almost like a an anarchy as such. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, we, we we also know scripturally that we're not to judge that person's fate, but we can deduce that it wasn't, it probably wasn't good, but we don't know what happened in that last millisecond of life. That, that's a good point. We don't know what happens in the last millisecond, but at the same token, you know, uh, here again, you know, we're not to judge anyone, you know, and, right. and I hear people bring this argument, you know, back and forth. Um, I think I'd make a good podcast later on, but this is really off the topic. But but Jesus says we can be good fruit checkers. Right, exactly. So we, yep. we can gauge, I mean, look at the fruit of the Spirit. I mean, none of us mm-hmm. are going to, none of us are going to be perfect. None of us are going to do what we're supposed to do every moment of time. You know, we're not perfected yet. We will right. be perfected. We're not perfected yet. But at the same time, that that 
seeking after moral virtues, seeking after the Holy Spirit's virtues in us. That's that's what we really should be about. And when the Spirit's in us, He's going to produce certain things in and through our lives. Mm. Not to get off subject too far, but but just just a point. And and this was this was in discussion with a friend of mine, and he was talking to a, a relative, and and uh, she's a Mormon, and and he had he had said to her, they got in a discussion, and and he said, well, explain to me what your heaven's like, and her and her reply was, well, my heaven is all of my family is in heaven with me, and he looked at her straightly and said, what if one of those relatives doesn't want to be in heaven? Mm. And and she said, "Well, what do you mean?" He said, "If they don't, if she doesn't, or if they don't want God now, they're not going to want God in heaven." That's true. And so it, it's kind of important, I guess, that we we understand that there there are um, there are there is that rejection. Exactly what you were just talking about in in uh, in Matthew. Um, it's I think it's important that we recognize that. Carl, Carl Bart brings up an interesting point, and I'm not saying I necessarily agree or disagree with it, but I think it's an intriguing point that he views election differently than what most people do. He, he views election through the lens of saying that Christ is the elect one and that God elected to save the world, but for a person to reject that election, uh, they would essentially reject the, the, the choice of God to save them. And essentially refuse that gift, refuse that calling upon their life, and go their own mm. way. Mm. Again, I don't say I agree or disagree, but I think it's a very interesting, compelling point. Yeah, I was just going to say that's that's an interesting point. I guess I'd never even um, considered it um, to to look in that direction. So, um, number eight: uh, How does the history of John's day? And the backdrop of the book of Daniel play into one's interpretation of the mark of the beast. Here again, it's very important if, if we're going to be good students of biblical interpretation to to really engage not only the context of Scripture, but to put ourselves back in the time of the original hearers of this book, readers and hearers of this book. They grew up, John and the first readers of this book grew up in a time in a Greco-Roman world. Uh, they, they were Jewish, obviously, but they were living in Greco-Roman times. Mm-hmm. Many of these Greek-Roman cities had their own pagan deity, and mm-hmm. they would erect these large, humongous, sometimes massive uh, idols, these statues, and would say, to worship that idol, uh, they would even have um, they would even have uh, go to the markets. They would sacrifice uh, animals to this god, and then they would sell the meat in the meat markets. Now, this brings up a problem that Paul encounters in Corinth about right. whether or not you should eat that meat sacrificed to an idol, and that's a whole yeah. other discussion. But that's the backdrop <laughs> behind all of this. What's right. going on? So, this was commonplace in John's day. But if you also think about this, so this would have been in the readers' minds as they would say, yeah, you know, this Ephesus would have us worship Artemis, or maybe another place would have us worship Zeus, uh, or another god, or so on and so forth. So this was in the backdrop of all their minds. Also place this back in perspective of Daniel chapter 3, and this is very, very important. Uh, again, because I think you find the Old Testament all throughout the book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. Um, the, 
Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 3, Daniel chapter 3, sets up a... Nine, and this is after Daniel rightly interprets the dreams, and, and he, he claims, if, if I remember correctly, I think he claims to... Well, let me just turn over there right quick. I think he claims to uh, want to worship God, and then the next thing he does is he sets up these uh, this huge, enormous... Um, this enormous idol uh, is something like 90 foot tall by 9 foot wide. It's an enormous right. thing. And in verses 1 through 3, we say we see that he demands everyone fall down and worship this gaudy idol. Mm-hmm. Nebuchadnezzar, you know, they have to do this. And if they don't do this, we find in verse 6, then they will um, they'll be thrown into a furnace of fire. Okay, they'll be mm-hmm. burned alive. Okay. Nebuchadnezzar's command causes a problem, an obvious problem for the devout Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that, that, those are their Babylonian names. Their real names are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That's their, that's their Hebrew names. So Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah chose the flames of the furnace over worshiping a false god because they knew only Yahweh deserved such praise. Now again, I love what they do here. They say to him, and let me see if I can find this passage of Scripture. Uh, Let me flip over here real quickly. Uh, So they're given the challenge. Let's see. And and while you're looking at that, one thing that's important about this time period is to recognize that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those are the the Babylonian names that were given to them, but they were also men that were actually stolen or taken as slaves as young boys. Absolutely. So, So they had how much time getting the scriptures and getting the belief and the understanding of Yahweh in them, and how long had it taken uh, the Babylonian Empire to be able to try to work Yahweh out of these these men? And what they did, what the Babylonians did was really genius. I mean, in a, in a in a maniacal fashion. I mean, we had a military strategic fashion. They they took the best in the, in the elite of of the, their conquered nations. They would bring and feed them, and you know, give them wine and all the all the most luxurious things that they could ever have. And then they would train them up in in with some of the best education you could ever give them. But they would right. while training them, they would give them the Babylonian backdrop. They would give them you know, they give them education, but they would they would supplement it by Babylonian beliefs. And so they they try to make them a Babylonian. So, Mm -hmm. verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replies to the king. Nebuchadnezzar says, you've got to worship the god or the idol or you're thrown in the flames. Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the god we serve exists, then then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us... We want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. Now, here's the interesting thing. They're thrown in the fire. Uh, the, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fell bound in the furnace of fire. King Nebuchadnezzar jumps up in alarm. He said to his advisors, didn't we throw three men bound in the fire? They said, yes, of course, your majesty. He exclaimed, look, I see four men not tied walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth one looks like a son of the gods. 
Amen. Now, now, some translations say son of God, and this says son of the God. Some people say, well, why does it say that? Because Nebuchadnezzar was a polytheist. He believed in many gods. So most likely he would have recognized him being a son of the gods, but we know that the son of God was there in the midst. Mm -hmm. Oh, Oh, to have that kind of faith. Amen. Amen. Mm. But see, this is the backdrop we have to, to think of because this had to be in the minds of individuals as well as they're going through this this pagan society um, that right. they they may have to make a decision and so uh, to, about who their ultimate allegiance is to I think we as Christians have to do that as well is our ultimate allegiance to politics or is our ultimate allegiance to the king of kings because mm-hmm. Jesus says you can't serve both God and the world that doesn't mean we can't be involved but at right. the same time, our focus, we should not become so obsessed over these right. issues because we realize that this kingdom, that our kingdom is not of this world. Right. And just to add, just to add that, we're in the position we're in nowadays because we, in, in times past, backed out of where we should have been involved in. Yeah, you know, so so yes, political involvement is important, but it's it's not first and foremost. Well, this goes back to what Jesus says: give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and give to God the things that are God's. Mm-hmm. And and ultimately, you know, I, I believe in human freedom. I believe in free will, but at the same time, God is directing all things to a certain end. Right. You know, and so and so we have to understand that. You know, we may be. You know, it may be that we're 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 facing some of the judgment of God because of some of the things that's going on. You know, right. so ultimately, the, the the yes, I mean, we we all have things we were called to do, but at the same time, um, and on the same token, we have to ask ourselves: Where is our ultimate allegiance found? Is yeah. it found in this nation? Because ultimately, the Bible tells us that every nation will be subjugated under the authority of Christ, which means that this nation, as much as patriotic as I am, as much as I love this nation, this nation will one day be subjugated under the authority of the King of Kings. Which that'll be okay, too. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> That's the only perfect ruler that there ever was. That's right. Uh, so the last question here. How does this exercise speak to the importance of proper biblical interpretation and the importance of systematic theology? I think it should show the vast importance that proper biblical interpretation holds. There's nothing in this text. I mean, there are different ways you can approach things about the end times, about eschatology, but there is nothing in this passage of Scripture that, that leads us to believe that the mark of the beast is some secretive thing that, this, that we're, we're going to take against our will. Mm-hmm. People will make the conscientious effort, or the conscious effort, or the conscious, make the conscious decision to take right. up the mark of the beast. In contrast, if you serve Christ, you have this type of mark. I found the passage of Scripture. Here's just one of, of gosh, several First uh, Corinthians, excuse me, Second Corinthians one twenty two says, "He has also put his seal on us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a down payment." Oh man, we have the seal of God on us. We have another one. Yeah. Five five. Let me flip over there right quick while we're at it. Five yeah. five. Now the one who prepared us for this very purpose 
is God who gave us the Spirit as a down payment. Oh, let me just go ahead and read this, pa- this whole entire passage of Scripture. Bear with me here, man. This is good stuff. He says, For we know that if our earthly, te- that if our earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal dwelling in the heavens, not made with hands. Indeed, we groan in this tent, desiring to put on our heavenly dwelling. Mm-hmm. And see here again, it goes back to where is our focus at? Is our focus on earthly things or heavenly things? Since when we have taken it off, we will will be found naked. Indeed, we groan while we are in this tent, burdened as we are, because we do not want to be unclothed but clothed, so that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a down payment. And that very Spirit of God... Is the very same spirit that when we leave this world, we're not going to be thinking about politics. We're going to be ushered into the very presence of God. To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. And that very same spirit, my friend, is going to be the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. It's going to be the same spirit that raises our bodies of flesh into that resurrected body when Christ returns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Well, we don't have time to get into my other questions or my other statements, so we're we're running out. So, well, I I tell you what, let me just give a, just a brief comment on on this because okay. I know we talked about it before the podcast. So we were we're talking about you know end times questions about the different uh, ways that people look at end times, like uh, like a pre-trib, post-trib, pre you know pre-wrath, uh, right. millennialism, post-millennialism. Um, I've given my position on on previous podcasts about where I stand. How all of this comes together, uh, we can have disagreements on that. But I don't think that we can take the Bible out of context. I think that's where our problems have come. Uh, when we start cherry-picking passages of Scripture, we make the Bible say things that it never fully intended. And right. I'm not a Barthian or Bardian by any stretch of the imagination, but I do here again think think Carl Bart has a good point to say that there is an ultimate author, capital A of Scripture, who used authors, small a, to write the text. So taking the authorial intent position, knowing that what the author writes holds ultimate meaning, we also understand that what we have is the very proclamation and revelation of God in our hands when we hold the Holy Bible. And we owe it to God to see what He is trying to communicate to us. So while we can have different various we can have various viewpoints and, and still be under the umbrella of Christianity, we don't have the right to misapply and take passages of Scripture out of context because I think we've done ourselves a disservice by doing so right and that's where we can get the inerrancy of scripture with the errance of of human writers so anyway uh folks we just thank you we've been we've been blessed to be able to sit here and and visit with you guys about this and we just appreciate it and we here at bellator christie want to thank you for spending time together with us and we value your time our prayers that this podcast helps stretch your mind and is a place to strengthen your faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and as a reliable source of information. 
Join us next time on the Bellator Christie Podcast. Until next, until next time, Brian and I say, Soldier on, friends. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. The opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. The Bellator Christie Podcast and bellatorchristie.com are protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The opening theme is the song Crucified, written by John and Michaela Limanis, performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christie. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. Have you ever wondered about the Christian faith, but have become bogged down by difficult terminology? Are you a Christian and faced doubts and you didn't know where to turn? Maybe your faith has been challenged and you don't know how to respond. Or perhaps you desire to learn more about how to winsomely defend your faith, but you do not have the time nor the finances to enroll in seminary. If any of these situations describes you, then consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics. This book confronts the challenges facing the Christian faith, but does so in a way that is accessible to everyone. The Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is available in softcover, hardcover, on the Kindle, and Nook. Consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics from your favorite bookstore today. Do you have a question about the Bible, theology, or apologetics that you've always wanted to ask but never felt comfortable asking? If so, we want to encourage you to head over to bellatorchristie.com and submit your question on the Submit a Question link. Your question will be reviewed and may be featured on a future article or podcast. Remember, the only dumb question is the one unasked. So go over to bellatorchristie.com now and submit your question.